Hey guys, I'm Stephanie Wallace and this is Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System. Independence Radio is a series of conversations with members of the ICS community about issues of health care and independent living for people with disabilities and older adults. I had the honor to speak with Marilyn Saviola, ICS's Senior Vice President of Advocacy and the Women's Health Project. Marilyn has long been a fierce advocate for disability rights, and we had a wide-ranging conversation about her life, her work, and what it means to be independent. Enjoy the conversation. Recently, after talking to people like Anna Faye, I realize now that we all have a part to play in the advancement of uh, as people with disabilities. And we can't just relax and ride on the work that the activists and the people who are really in the trenches have done for us. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it because the things that you guys have done have made my life so easy. I mean, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's so much easier than I imagined that it was for you. Thank you. Coming Thank up. You. That means a lot. And I, you know, that's what gets me to where I want to be, where I want to go back with you and, and ask you, what got you started in activism and in this disability uh, rights movement? Well, it's, I probably do better with a rambling answer than trying to give you a straight answer. Oh, good. Just go for it. <laughs> so if I'm off track, let me know. I became disabled when I was 10 as a result of polio. And up until that time, I really didn't know. I met one one relative who was really disabled and once in my life. That was the only exposure I had to someone with a disability. And um, then um, after you go through the food stage and rehab, um, I went home. And I lived at home in an inaccessible environment. We had a mother-daughter house and with my grandparents. My grandparents were on the ground floor, and my, my mom, my dad, and I, and dog, were on the second floor. And they never made a change or anything uh, for me to get out. So while I was younger, I was 10, it was relatively easy to get dragged down the stairs, you know, slung over people's shoulders almost, and uh, carried down. But as I got bigger, much bigger, and, and parents grew older, it became harder and harder. So my life was shrinking there. Uh, at the same time, uh, I was connected with Goldwater. Now, Goldwater Memorial Hospital was part of Health and Hospitals Corporation, and it was a long-term care specialty hospital, and they had a special unit. Going back to the 50s, where uh, people who had polio or other neuromuscular diseases went. And I, I met the most extraordinary people in the world that I could have met. Uh, there were, you know, the professional staff, uh, uh, my peers, other people who became disabled as I was disabled at the same time trying to grow up. Uh, 
And as we grew up, uh, going home would just stay with our families, and in most cases, that didn't work for us. Mine because of accessibility, and also because my mom wasn't physically able to be my personal care aide. And in those days, our home care wasn't a right. It wasn't anything that was guaranteed. So a private foundation, the polio foundation was called then, uh, would give you certain hours of care, like four hours a day. And my neighbor would do that. And so becoming a teenager, uh, you know, uh, it would have been very easy once I got outside to be able to hang out with my friends and because they were all in the neighborhood. And then it became more of a problem because we had parties. And if I, if I remember wanting to go to parties and usually going, if my cousin was there. Cause Can I, so at this point, were you on crutches? No, polio hit you all at once. It's not progressive. So I became a quad overnight. Yeah. It's not that they all happen. While you have this fever as a result of the polio virus. So you were in a wheelchair? Yes, with a, with a ventilator. Wow. Right. Okay. So, I remember I, um, my friends started hanging out at the movie or at the, you know, wherever. And I couldn't go because I didn't have a power chair. I, uh, like I not always had someone to bring me up and downstairs, uh, and lots of my friends were teenage girls who couldn't really do it, and um, so my world is constantly shrinking to the point where I made an intellectual decision to, to, to an emotional decision to live at Coldwater rather than to live home, which is so. Contrary to any of the mores of our society, supposed to be home, according to me. But my life was. Hold me. It started when I was about 13 and went until I was 17. That's how long the process took. And, and I wanted to go to college, and there was no way in hell I could go to college if I couldn't get in and out of the. You know, my apartment. So your schooling before, uh, like high school, did you actually go to a oh, high school no, or were no. you homeschooled? It's homeschooled. <laughs> Through the Board of Ed, it's called Home Instruction. Up until high school, I had uh, three days a week, an hour and a half mm -hmm. each day. Then as I went to high school, I got a math teacher. Now, I didn't get a math teacher until I went back to the board. I had an art teacher. Yeah. That's it? That was it. And Just it was, an art teacher? And my regular teacher for an hour and a half. Oh. Three days a week. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to college, but I wasn't learning. When I first went to college, uh, I was denied uh, vocational rehab money. Because I was too disabled and I never worked. So one of my first advocacy battles was to get... One, they said, get a college that would accept you. So I got accepted into LIU. Then uh, they said, well, you know, she's too disabled. She's not going to be able to, to, to do it. And I wrote a dissent, Senator Javits. That's how far back we are. 
it's it's and I mean and I just I want the chance to try. So they gave me a year's probation that I can maintain a C or better. Uh, great point. GPA I would be able to never pay for it. And I did and they did. But I I don't know, it, it just wasn't right. I I I was feeling that uh there was no services in place. I was a burden to my family, I felt. Okay. And, you know, the subconscious message is real clear. That my mother's given up her life to take care of me, and she's not well. And my dad would be out of the home more and more. He had, he had a business. He owned a small store, a candy store, on Jeanette. And uh, so he spent all more hours there. So when I came to go, well, I still had this fear to go. There were a lot of young people there at the time, and we were dispersed throughout the hospital. And so a group of us fought for the right to have a special unit that would address our needs. And I think it had to be something from 18 to 35 or whatever, and that it would be geared to people who were going to be leaving and returning to the community and uh, would uh, have to, um, I wanted to go to school or a vocational fair. So we're trying to do that. And uh, so they developed a special unit called the Young Adult Unit. We had the, the nursing staff, the nurses' aides, the nurses, were handpicked and selected to work there. They didn't wear uniforms. We had a house mother and like a regular recreation person and social worker and everyone handpicked and we would and most hospitals everything is geared around the convenience of the nursing staff so the day shift got you up the uh, night shifts did little but sleep the evening shift did what other so how do you kind of play that when uh, you're going to school so in college and have an early morning class and the and if this was the way it was done, you wouldn't start getting done until 8 in the morning and therefore would never make it out. So if you were in this, on our unit and you had an early class, the night shift got you out. Um, the, um, and if you had to study rather than the, the evening shift putting you to bed, the night shift or whatever, so you can get the work done. And so we got that all done, which was a political achievement. And then they decided uh, to, uh, not staff, but regular, uh, to, to move the staff that was on, because we were getting too uppity. Too uppity? It, it was the 60s. Okay. We had a lot of booze and other stuff going on. You were being young adults. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In the 60s. You know, so... Um, here we were, and um, so we, we, we planned the demonstration. That's how I met Anna. I hadn't known Anna before that. Because we had gone to meetings at a group she was involved in called National Spinal Cord Injury Foundation, I believe. And uh, told her that we were doing this, and we planned to sit in. So we had a sit-in in the lobby of the hospital, we had called the state senator who showed up. Anna showed up with some people and 
a lot more people came and the cameras came because I went, I forgot what channel did it. And so we stopped it. So I think that was my first real victory. Was that the most significant victory for you? or They're all so significant. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I realized that you could really have power if you work together. Mm -hmm. I remember then going to a demonstration a few years later when I was still living in Goldwater. I was living in Goldwater all the time I was going to, to school. And I, uh, we, the state was cutting back on sponsoring people with disabilities to graduate school when I wanted to go to grad school. And they told me I couldn't go. The doctor said, if you go, you're not going to come back. I no place to go. Wait, if you go away to grad school? You no, were going if away? I, if I went to the demonstration oh. that was protesting the Bessett or at the time, before we are in state vocation, we have agency. Uh, not sponsoring graduate school for mm -hmm. people with disabilities. Um, I did with the demo when I went, and they told me if I went, I couldn't come back. So I went with a friend, and we came back. Uh, as we were leaving, they're taking our beds, and all our junk out and putting wow. it in the store. Are you kidding? So at this point, and you, you saw them taking your beds? Yes, right past us. Did you have uh, any hesitation at that at that point? I was so scared. Okay, but I couldn't give it up. I, I, I mean, there were three of us, and I just could not give it up. So we were going like three hours. So hours did you guys in. ever have a discussion about what are we going to do when we we? I guess we didn't believe they would do it. We thought it was all just you know whatever. Mm -hmm. But so when we came back. We were told we had been discharged against medical advice, and they had to readmit us all. They had to help and separated the three of us into different units. Wow. Are you kidding me? No. The next day, I called Anna, and she got her blood called his boss, who was in charge of Goldwater, in a way. And they put us all back where we were supposed to be. So I, I, it didn't feel... It never felt right mm -hmm. that that I shouldn't be able to live in the community. Right. That if I wanted to have a life, if I wanted, uh, you know, to do things, I would have to fight for them. I knew that, and so I got very involved in the disability rights movement. Can I ask you? Do you ever get tired of 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 fighting? Oh God, yes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's didn't we win this battle before? Right. And there it is again. And the scariness that, uh, you know, we're getting old and who's going to replace us as advocates? Now, that, 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 that leads into my next question. How do you get people who, like, as I said before, you guys fought a fight, which made the people now, people like me, made our lives easier. So I think we don't feel like we have to fight. But one of the things that we don't realize is that without that fight, these things might start being taken back from us. And so how do you get people like me motivated, you know? And so many battles still left that haven't right. been touched. Healthcare access, um, the bias against women with disabilities having children, 
it's got, I don't know, it, it, it feels like it. I want to be part of this because it's myself. I don't like to be told I can't. Right. Yeah. And how did you end up here at ICS? <laughs> it's an interesting part. Um, I know Rick for quite a while. We were on different committees together in the 80s and 90s. And uh, particularly around home care, uh, community-based home care services. And at the time, they were always trying to cap hours to cut hours. They wouldn't give more. And so we would fight, and Rick would be fighting. Uh, and we would work to, together as a coalition to, uh, to change things around. And I was the executive director of Sydney at the time. And uh, I wasn't getting anywhere, you know, into the areas I wanted to do more work in. And so when uh, Rick was starting ICS, I called him and I asked him, can we have lunch? Which I said, uh, we did. And uh, he, he was kind of waiting for me to say what it is. And I said, I know what you're doing. I don't know if I understand it. Or I like it, and like to know more because I want to work with you. And he let he almost choked. You know, the look on his face. You you want to work? I said yes. I want to continue to do advocacy. So he said, "I'm not going to give you an answer now. Let me think about it and think of a role for you." Which I said, I want to make sure the members got what they needed. So he hired me. He called me back the next week and offered me a position that he created. The irony of the whole thing is I do a lot more. I've done a lot more advocacy, both internally and externally, since I've been here than I did as an executive director of an independent living center. Because we had a commitment. There were more people. And that's one of the things that is so unique about Rick and ICS. If you look at the leadership council, me and uh, Doug, Lorene, and Regina all come from a disability rights background. You know, uh, and to work together again has been great. So we, we, we come with that. And Rick was a community organizer and did a lot of stuff in the 60s and 70s about anti poverty movements. And he was, you know, so he was involved in the Willowbrook decree. So it, it was a place where people already saw us as people who needed to do this work. So since you've been here, you started the Women's Health Program. And tell me how that started and why you started it. A couple of reasons. Uh, one primary is the problem I experienced. And we did some focus group and from my groups. I learned what the members experience in trying to get women's health and also from colleagues and friends. That issue of getting a pap smear, a pelvic exam, a uh, mammogram, which depended if you could get in, and there's no guarantee that if you could get in the building, in the room, the machine would go up and down, the tables would go up and down. You know, you wouldn't be able to get a good exam. And uh, that started it. Also, at the time, someone I had grown up with in Goldwater was diagnosed with breast cancer and died because 
it was so bad before they uh, before Pietzi P so she had a lot of trauma and spasticity so she was really difficult so they just never bothered to do a mammogram on her and so so that so that I learned that you know the system it just not set up for people with disabilities you know and we would it took we were looking for a place where they did one stop shopping you go and get all your care you have your mammogram you have your pelvic exam or your childbearing age child you know uh, family planning uh, regular regular GYN exams and stuff like that it doesn't happen with people with disabilities some people will tell well you don't need it well why because I'm not you're not sexually active well, they never asked the person if she was assumed it was assumed or um, a magical thinking on the part of people with disabilities well I have uh, a spinal cord injury or I, I had a stroke or I have MS I have my shama you know you know like you got so they won't have to worry about breast or ovarian cancer because they already had something. had something so they wouldn't go for screenings or they would say oh I'm so tired of doctors because I'm going to the doctor all the time I kind of neglect their, their woman parts mm-hmm. lack of a better term uh, yeah so I'm sorry it makes you wonder how many women have suffered and and died because of no access right and, and, and no disability competence you know um, we, we, okay I'll give you a couple examples we, we know from the research from the literature that women that there's not a higher incidence of breast cancer in women with physical disabilities however there's a significant higher mortality rate mm. and two reasons for one lack of early detection but the second reason I find more disturbing uh, lack of aggressive treatment so someone along the lines had made a judgment that your life isn't as fulfilling or worthwhile to put the extra effort this compounded with the fact that doctors and other clinicians are not trained in medical school about working for people with disabilities uh, it's not even included in cultural competency that they very reluctant and many doctors see us as their failures they can't cure us well it's I mean medicine as you're sick you get cured mm-hmm. right yeah. they don't see anything that's on long term care mm-hmm. issues and uh, so we know there's no competency about what you do is there any type of um uh, concern or movement or anything in place to try and get some disability awareness in medical schools? We've been working with our advisory council on that. We do, we're one of our members of our committee as well as one of the doctors we work with is finding a curriculum for GYN doctors. Okay. Now, how do you position someone whose legs can't get in this car? You know, mm-hmm. what kind of speculum do you use? Okay. You know, right. uh, and at the same time, 
we are uh, trying to develop and moving into primary care okay. to develop a blueprint where we just published one it's coming out in a week or two we'll have copies of it to talk about uh, what competence what do you have to know about disability to be a competent a regular primary care doctor okay. and but no disability for instance if someone goes into a doctor's office and for the first time presents with high blood pressure, most of the time the doctor orders a diuretic. Well, for someone in a wheelchair, right. that could be a disaster. Right. Because she didn't get to the bathroom in time. Right. So that's a competency. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when you when you took this when introduced this program. Uh, to medical facilities. How were you met? Were you met with resistance or were they welcoming? You started working with the Department of Health with the state. And uh, they were very, and New York lawyers were the public interest. And we, we did a document called Breaking the Barriers, which talked about the barriers that women with physical disabilities encounter and trying to get at. Uh, it's good, accessible, competent care. And so we did that. We did meetings and we reached out to lots of people. One site we went to for mammograms uh, where we knew somebody. So our goal, our original goal was to have sites that were accessible, meaning that you could get in the building, you could get in the room, and, and, and that. Uh, they were welcoming, or they didn't treat you like the problem of the day. So it really wasn't that held to an ADA standard or anything like that. And so, what, one, so we needed different sites. So one, a, a colleague, a friend of mine, who used to work, and I, and I, I promised not to tell the hospital something. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it, we uh, got an appointment to see the chief of the mammography division within the radiology stuff and it was housed in uh, a brand new building which had been designed like sometimes in the early 2000s so we knew it had to meet state and federal and local law for accessibility so that was it so we went there for the appointment unfortunately my friend was out sick that day but so the person who was supposed to meet for uh, was myself and with Susan Wolf, which was a gynecologist who worked in disability many years before. She was, she's our clinical director for Women's Health. I went uh, to her and I and Catherine at the time, my age. We were, you know, I go down in a mammography in an x ray area, it's a huge hall. And then smack in the middle, there's the nurse's station, or whatever that desk is. So we're headed for that way to find out where we're going to go meet this heart. And this woman comes down the hall, she's got a white coat on, and she's waving her arms and going, no, no, no. And she comes up to me and she says, no, no, no. People like you can't come here. What? That's what I said. People like you? I said, people like me? Yeah, and she points to my wheelchair. Uh, you can't have a mammogram. It's impossible. 
I said, but I can add mammograms. I know I can. No, 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 it doesn't make sense. You have to have a sonogram. And it takes me over to where they do the sonogram. The woman there said, it's impossible because um, sonograms are not considered diagnostic. They're, they're considered diagnostic, not training, uh, not training. And no, one, no insurance is going to pay for it. Right? And Susan, our, our, nurse, our doctor, was telling people that when she, as a doctor, when she referred someone for mammogram, she would get reports back about unable, incomplete study on it, you know, to visualize all the breast tissue because of disability. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? But this, 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 with all that's going on, totally supports why you're there. Yes. Totally supports why you're there. And we've had major success with the Health and Hospital Corporation facilities. A lot. The not-for-profit, bankrupt system as opposed to these behemoths like NYU and New York and Cornell mm-hmm. and Sinai, you, know, you name them. Now, how many facilities participate in the program? We have two facilities that only do mammography. One is the Avon Breast Cancer Screening Center of Columbia Presbyterian. Second one is Beach, which is the Breast Examination Center of Harlem, which is a uh, satellite of Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, we have Marisania, which used to be a DNT center, they now call it Community Health. What is DNT? Diagnostic and Treatment. Okay. Now they call it Community Health Centers. Uh, and that, then we have Woodhall, and we just brought Lincoln on, and we're in the process of setting up Cumberland in Brooklyn and Gouverneur in Manhattan. Oh, great. And hopefully go right through the, the hospital. Oh, great. No. I mean, it's not state-of-the-art. I mean, if someone said, as of December 31st, all, everything in hospitals and clinics have to be accessible. It won't happen. Right. It costs too much money. So our drive, our goal is for ADA compliance, but in the meantime, to take little steps. Right, so get that. what you can get. So we, will get we will need care now, not in 20 years. Right, exactly. How has uh, member participation been in the program? It's been good. Good. It's been good. People report back to us that uh, one of the doctors we worked with was floored one day and called me. She had been doing working with us for a month, a couple months, and said, the, and I don't know how many people I saw who said, but more than 90% looked at me like I was crazy when I did a sexual history on them. And they told me that was the first time any doctor asked them that. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm glad for this program, and I do participate in in the program. I go to a beach in Harlem for the mammography, and they are really good. They're very good. They're very accommodating, and they are... You, you don't feel out of place. Right, right. You don't feel out of place at all. And I also um, I go to Marsania, which was, is very, uh, very good. Um, I... I recently had, I went, uh, I think it was last month, and um, there's a doctor, the doctor there, he's very, very good. Yeah, Sinfield. 
Yes, Dr. So Skimp. He's very good. He's very, uh, he makes you relax. You know, I had, um, my ride was coming up. They were running a little late. My ride was coming in 20 minutes. And I said, look, I, I don't think we can do this. You know, because I only have 20 minutes. He says, we can do it. <laughs> you know, I said, but if I miss my ride, he said, we can do it. You know, and I was thinking more so about how slow I move. But, you know, and we did it. We, we, I, well, by the time I got outside, my ride came up. But I had, a, 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 I'm, I get a little bit proud. Right. You know, so as I was trying to get dressed, the nurses were helping me. And I'm always saying, I got it, I got it, I'll do it myself, I'll do it myself. And then she said, listen, I'm here, let me help you. And as she's helping me, I got tears coming down my face because she had to help me. It's pride, Marilyn. Don't, you looked at me strange no, for a minute. It's okay. It's, okay. <laughs> it's the, the pride. Sometimes I know I need help, but I don't like to need help. Right, right. That's what it is. And um, like I said, I made it. But I, I've had experiences with Dr. Stempel where it was just like he had to make me laugh in order to make me relax. And so I, I really appreciate the program because seeing just it, being in an environment where I know is, in, is is accommodating and still having that little breakdown, I could imagine what it would be like right. in another. Right. I probably wouldn't even go. I honestly probably wouldn't go. And that brings me around to a question of independence. And, um, you know, like I was just saying, I don't like to need help, even though I know I do need help sometimes. Do you consider yourself to be independent? Everyone in this world is dependent on someone. And I can, I'm dependent for the things I can't do for myself. Right. But I'm independent because I direct that care. I control it. I make my own decisions and all. So, too many people who are physically disabled or think about being physically disabled get overwhelmed with being dependent. I'm having to ask someone else for help. But, you know, if you go through the day and you just see in the office, disability or not, everyone asks everyone to do something. It's just a different thing. And it's harder for a woman who's been the caregiver to switch the role and become the one that gets the care. But the true definition of of, uh, personal care services is just a person who's physically unable to do for themselves any major life function from dressing to toileting to bathing to cooking to going to the bath. Uh, so, you know, you're doing that, you're controlling all that, but people see once they lose that, they lose their status, they lose respect and whatever. And I think, you know, and someone becomes disabled later in life, it's harder. I think if you're born with your disability or if you get it as a young adult or a child, then it becomes more incorporated into your identity much quicker than if you were, let's say, 32 years old and you you had a car accident or, you know, you had MS or or whatever. It's like you had no time to... It's just, yeah, boom, yeah, all, all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it life was, changes. Right, right. And uh, we don't know how to react to other people we've known, and other people don't know how to react to us. Right. 
feel like people will say uh, to me, oh, you want to go for a walk? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Right, 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 right. Isn't it kind of funny, though, yeah, to is. see them fumble? <laughs> it, it is very interesting. very interesting to go out with someone who's not used to going out with you, and people are staring and out of you know they're staring at you doesn't that make you uncomfortable you know the rejection right. on their part right 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 I, I, I always felt like it should be well since becoming disabled like there should be some type of disability classes because it's like you're disabled now what you know yeah. what what do you do from there what do you do I, I met a woman uh, recently who uh, had an accident in May and, um, you know, she was in a nursing home. I'm glad she's out now. But it's just trying to navigate. You know, it's so new. It's so new. Yeah, it's so new and so many things to deal with. You know, she's a single mother and she, she used to work in healthcare. She used to be an aide, you know, so, and she used to work in nursing homes and things like that. And now all of a sudden the tables are turned. And I think she thought, just like I, I probably thought that. Once you become disabled, there's like some type of committee or something that, you know, hands you the disability package, you know, everything you need here, you know, but it's not that way. So in, in terms of uh, disability rights and accessibility, where do, where, do you, where do you think we go from here? I think there's laws on the books that are threatened constantly to be cut or to change or be rolled back. Benefits to be rolled back, or uh, um, things just not to be monitored. Like so there's nobody in charge of you know what healthcare facilities are doing as far as accessibility. But the Patient Care Act, Obamacare, you know, has a mandate of dealing with minority groups, including disability. I think so. It's making sure that the world. That the laws that are on the books are enforced and to make sure that they're not weakened and can move ahead into some things that still have not been. And how would uh, someone who's interested in picking up that 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 fight? Uh, how how where would they turn? Where would they go to? In New York City, I would send them to DIA meetings. That's disability in action. action. Yeah, disabled in action. Disabled in action. And uh, the independent living centers. Okay. All righty. All right. Thank you, Marilyn. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. This is fun. That was Marilyn Saviola, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and the Women's Health Project at ICS. You have been listening to Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System, a community-based nonprofit agency serving the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and dedicated to supporting older adults and adults with physical disabilities and chronic conditions to live at home and participate fully in community life. To learn more, visit www.icsny.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephanie Wallace, founder of The Laid Group. You can learn more about what we do at facebook.com slash loveandintimacyforthedisabled. Bye-bye.